Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, yeah me. This time we'll be trying to find out what it means to be an amateur in the world of the gig economy. Performance poet Quiva Lavelle explains what a hula hoop adds to a poem. And we have a tribute to the master typographer Phil Baines who has died. But first, some questions. How much of our emotions can machines express? Can machines create feelings all by themselves? Is everything a machine? What are feelings? Is this a dagger I see before me? Okay, enough questions. Some answers. Leon Mishner, a.k.a. Clavicon, is a musician, composer, technologist and creator of the APP, an amplified prepared piano. Think globs of blue tack and action dolls bobbling around the gubbins of the baby grand. This unique instrument allows him to create something like electronic music using something like classical piano technique. Leon Mishner spoke to Culture Files' Louise McMahon about the music and the machines. Okay, so I would say, hello, my name is Leon Mishner, and I have no idea what or who I am. Hmm. The APP is a term I use to differentiate the amplified prepared piano as opposed to the prepared piano. And to sort of really think about what amplification does to the piano. The amplification is not there to make it louder, it's there to create its own sonic identity of something like the guitar, you know. It's not just making the acoustic guitar louder, it's fundamentally becoming a new instrument, you know. And it's quite interesting to put the ancient wooden soundboard of the piano, which is probably thousands of years old in principle, and then put it against the modern speaker. I then thought, no, I'll try clavichord. Um, it's quite boring, but there's so many obstacles to getting a clavichord, amplifying it and putting it through a PA. For those that don't know, a clavichord is a very early keyboard instrument, which is just a string and a hammer that hits the string, or a tangent as it's known, and that's it. It's like a simplified harpsichord where it doesn't pluck, but they're very portable. But that was that. So it was an extension of the piano techniques, but it's very, it's very different. Although I still want to make kick drums and snare sounds and hi-hat sounds, and but I'm less thinking of that now. It's more about visiting certain frequencies and ranges through amplification. Okay, so how, through amplification, do you get a kick sound from a piano? I will usually detune the lowest string so it sounds without any preparations like this. Then I add my microphone and a few preparations, which is a bolt, some other rattly things and some bits of plastic. It still won't sound very much like a kick through the normal piano. Through the normal piano it sounds like this. You can hear that the kick has had its note taken off and it now sounds like a sort of thump. The next step is to amplify the sound through the speakers using some pickups and some microphones which I attach directly to the string and this gives us a sound like this. 
I can then play a repeating pattern. I can then play something in the right hand over this. When everything is recorded with some EQ and delay and a bolt giving a kind of shaker sound which is also run through delay, it sounds like this. It's very hard to master something which is constantly fluid, so you learn this flexibility and I think that was part of electronic experimentation, is this exploring these different objects and sounds and shifting your instrument and it's always morphing, <laughs> but mainly it's just a vibe. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting you talk about kick because, you know, the bottom, the bass is the foundation, I think, for me. All I, I, I knew when I was doing this that, you know, you build from the bass up everything else would fall in. Once the kick's there, once the bass is there, then you just got to get the snare, which is the middle frequencies, and then the top frequencies just sit on everything, you know. So, yeah, bass and then everything else just falls in. That's, that's where you start. But also how you play it. If you play it like a machine, it sounds like a machine. You know? The musical instrument is just a tool, it's just a boring thing. So I think the danger is, is often the tools become elevated beyond their station. You know, this should serve the music, and music should serve whatever emotion you're trying to say. And for me, I got locked into this really intractable technical thing. Now I just want to make music again. Does the acoustic piano have feelings? OK. Can you give it feelings? I do get a sense of feeling from very, very mechanically played, sequenced-inspired music. I just think the feeling is not particularly one which is easy to pin down. If you think about it, you know, doing a retardo, or slowing down or making a phrase, it's imitating the human voice, you know, which is what there's always pianists are always supposed to do, imitate a voice. And Chopin is the singing tone, that's feeling. I would also say that a Bach prelude, you know, if it's played quite mechanically, can have a strange feeling to it. I don't know what it is. For me, it's like bringing in an alien. The feeling is one of an alien life form. It's technology. It's something extra human. We're directly connecting with a kind of other way of existence, like a, like a crystal or something, or, or like a piece of geometry or a piece of mathematics. They're not sentient. No, they're not sentient, yeah. yeah. So the feeling, you know, is, they're, the they're, feeling they're, is ultimately coming from us. I think with an acoustic instrument, you really hear mm. the emotional processing of the person. Can you do that by a machine? Perhaps feeling in music is just a simple projection of the human and the voice. Whereas if you engage with machines, you're able to kind of create this strange transcendence through a connection with a mechanic mechanization of something other. It's not human, it's inhuman. But then if it's inhuman, what is it? And I think it's pretty interesting we're right here now as a species with AI, you know, and how we interact with the machines. I think this, what is feeling? I would question that rhythmic precision would mean that you don't have feeling. I think the young, a lot of the younger generation with the gender fluidity thing is a sort of expression of this sort of new way of being plural, you know, or looking at things, instruments as collections. So I don't think I'm anything. You know, I've been trying to escape this all my life. It's like be a musician or be an artist or be a session musician. 
friends, I would say, hello, my name is Leon Mishner, and I have no idea about what I do, what I want to do, or what I'm going to do. Leon Mishner, a.k.a. Clavicon, there, and the reporter was Louise McMahon. And if you enjoyed that conversation, for an extended version with lots more hanging questions, keep an eye on the feed. Oh, the feed. The still-beating heart of Bohemian Dublin next. Quiva Lavelle is a multi-hyphenate writer and performer, organiser of poetry readings, literary salons, and at times, hula-hooping cabaret artist. She was doing the latter while reading her poetry this week as part of the Alternative Social Club in Dublin. But before that, Quiva Lavelle and her surprisingly large and not great on public transport hula-hoop came to Culture File Towers. My name is Quiva Lavelle. I am a poet, an artist, cartoonist and a producer. I like to kind of observe the world and my poetry is kind of, I guess, an extension of that. So, you know, as a poet, I might go somewhere with a notebook, go to a particular location and kind of snatch words that appeal to me and that might become a poem later. I like the variety show um, and as a performer who does different kinds of kinds of things I'm quite uh, at home with that. I did originally start performing to kind of get the poetry out there exclusively and then I would kind of end up getting different sorts of performance or acting gigs. So I like to uh, put together poetry events uh, or different kind of shows. Um, I was working with uh, Thirst for Verse. Um, I was also working with Oscar Wildhouse. Um, we do a few salons and just kind of share the work, get it out there, but also different kinds of environments. You know, it could be a warehouse, it could be somewhere as grand as Oscar Wilde's house one day. Yeah, actually, I'd uh, I'd like to read uh, Marble Orchard, um, which I wrote for my friend Stella. But yeah, she's kind of the person who brought me into the the goth family so a lot of them would have been around Dublin in the 80s and stuff and that's very much a big interest of mine. This poem is a tribute uh, I guess to Stella and to other friends that I um, have lost. Uh, I wrote it um, over lockdown uh, during which time they wouldn't let you go for a walk in Mount Jerome Cemetery <laughs> so it's kind of about that experience of just kind of wanting to take a stroll around there and kind of um, contemplate but not being allowed let in. Some of these words or phrases I did take from headstones, but not Mount Jerome because they didn't let me in. Marble Orchard for Stella. Yup, yup, yup. We're all going. Cold. Faster than love. Faster than our stone city turns to glass and turns its ass to us. Those beloved stones named those loved beyond the stars. Death is but the key locks you away from me, tears us apart. But come on, let's go. I guess when I started performing, I wanted to be like Lydia Lunch or Meredith Monk or something, or experimenters, I guess, and kind of opening up the form uh, to other kinds of performance. So when I started writing poetry, I would have been a kid. I had one teacher uh, in second class and she was just very encouraging. So. I just never really stopped, you know, I kept it going. And then once I was in college, I kind of got to a point where, okay, I'd like my work to kind of step out and have a life, you know, so people can experience it. And you have, and it's sitting over there, your own particular um, 
I do want to say gimmick, obviously, but added extra. Is <laughs> yes. Yeah, I guess it is a bit gimmicky, you know. And when I first came up with it, I didn't think that it would kind of stick or that people would kind of ask for it again. So the, the gimmick, I think probably the one trick I can do on a hula hoop is to perform my poetry while hula hooping. So I did that at the first Speranza Salon. That's how I opened events. I don't consciously use it to compose but I do just like to hula hoop and listen to music and then sometimes when I'm in a rhythm something will kind of flow into my mind. Whether to the marble orchard or to the crematorium I don't know. Perhaps somewhere we're on the engraved epitaphs even the moss spells out loved by all and stretches incomprehensibly apart stone forest without end. I can't return to a Grecian urn I can't stroll around in your dust. Only visit where you burned after you arrived at your funeral by motorbike. And now, not even that. At the gate, a top hat turns me away like the bouncer of morbidity. I not wishing to become a member, just to remember the friends of mine on that side beginning to outnumber those still warm to me. I mean, you have quite a track record in in spoken word and performance and so forth. I hear a lot about how difficult it is to kind of find spaces in Dublin at the moment. You're you're not suffering from that so much. No, I'd say I'd say I would because I think it's something that the whole um, the whole community is experiencing. Um, I've been organising gigs, I think, over ten years now. So there used to be a lot more space and. Yeah, a lot of venues and bars and stuff used to be more open to it, but there'd also be more kind of unconventional spaces. Like when I finished college, uh, myself and some friends at a Blue Bottle Collective, and we actually got permission from a landlord to use a disused building that was on Thomas Street. We did it up, we opened it up as a studio, we put on events there and stuff. And I can't really imagine the same thing happening these days. Um, I think it's harder to kind of find these um, maybe unused spaces and kind of put them to a good purpose. Uh, there is still some work like that, but I think it's just a bit more short-lived and kind of faces a bigger challenge. Yeah, I might have an easier time doing these things somewhere else, but I don't know, I just don't want it to die, you know? I just think Dublin would be different without these things happening. I'd like to be there just to recall the day I inherited all your leather, never to see you in them again. Though sometimes I feel you tapping the shoulder of your leather jacket that I wear like armour. Quirva Lavelle there and her up-and-coming projects include the Erlu Le Gras Festival in Galway, erlulegras.ie for more information. Now, we start this week a new series on amateurism from the novelist and online writer Joanna Walsh about what it means to be an amateur online, someone adding in their own particular way to the sights and sounds that fill the internet and what the omnipresence of such creativity means for the meaning of art. But sure, why am I delaying you here explaining when Joanna Walsh got that gig? I am an amateur. The internet has made us all amateurs. Wikipedia knows for us. Hinge chooses who we love. Google decides what we see. Facial recognition technology knows if we've been bad or good. AI makes art for us, writes for us, codes for us, and threatens to replace us at nearly everything. Anything made by humans is now artisan, has gone the way of craft, is obsolete, antique, cute. This is nothing new. 
Once upon a time, people worked as switchboard and lift operators. There were more travel agents, bank tellers, cashiers, assembly line and agricultural workers, data entry clerks. The internet has made us all amateurs, YouTube educators, booktop critics, wiki editors, Reddit moderators, Flickr photographers, OnlyFans porn stars, Pinterest curators, Twitter meme posters. We're in-game modders, insta-poets, clicktivists. We make meta-family albums. We create new worlds. Some of us have had second lives. These amateur acts have one thing in common. They are creative. The internet demands that we create an aesthetic, a way of appearing via any of its many interfaces. Before the net, we appeared direct. Online, what we make and make of ourselves is seen not only by whoever's in front of us, but by anyone we allow to see and some we don't. We are our own scriptwriters, photographers, costume and set designers, directors, foley artists. In real life, we choose our ways of looking, moving, speaking, but they are not recorded on a timeline, a watch list, an album, replayable by people we've never met and never will, a.k.a. art. I look at things created online and I wonder whether they're art, and if so, in what way. They look like the creative effort of an individual or group. They come at me across space and time via a medium, though it isn't a canvas, a stage or an old-school screen. I don't go somewhere special to encounter them like a gallery or a concert hall. I don't always give them my full attention. I look at them on the bus or scrolling over lunch. I watch them in snatches. I read them when I'm bored. But they give me art feelings. I think they're pretty or clever or scary or funny. Some of them mean more to me than work I have seen in galleries, watched at the movies, read in books. They make you think. They move me. I like them. I don't know much about art, but I know what I like. It's that rush of hitting like that gets me online. And online, what's not to like? This liking isn't always a straightforward pleasure. It's a recognition of difference, an admiration of challenge, appreciation of something smart, of a joke, of work done, even shock or disgust, all those things we talk about when we talk about art. That's aesthetics again, because aesthetics is not only about creating, but experiencing and evaluating, noticing, identifying, sorting, picking and rejecting, making hierarchies or making relations. In sorting, I am also creating something, a taxonomy, a list of what's there online. This is not only an act of judging, it is its own act of making. Do we know we're doing art things online? Conditions of the internet have confused us. The user-friendliness of online platforms means these acts are more casual, less effortful, not needing the commitment or expertise required even by what used to be called a hobby. Do we know we're amateurs, though some online creators are, or consider themselves or aspire to be professional or paid? The proliferation of free content online causes confusion as to whether these side hustles are actual work. It also blurs the lines of professional practice. Even for professionals, online engagement, a social media presence, a substack, a TikTok. 
is often performed at an amateur level, untrained and unpaid, not part of the day job. Writing this, I have amateur imposter syndrome. I don't know enough. Or rather, I know everything, which means I know that I know nothing. I'm not quoting Socrates. I saw that quote on a hashtag Daily Inspo Instagram post, type suspended over a sublime sunset, Comic Sans. I mean that I carry all my knowledge around in my pocket, along with the means of carrying out and recording my amateur activities on the cognitive extension device of my phone. The internet is old now. We have aged together. Online is not an unfamiliar experience anymore. It's where we live. The utopian para-universe of the net proposed in the 1990s didn't pan out, and most of us helped with that helplessly. Most of us amateur aestheticians secretly wanted the net to be a step to offline professional status, publication, exhibition, financial viability. Big business disguised as creative community, the platforms were naturally against us, and most of us didn't get there. Still, we got further than amateurs ever have before. And if amateurism has become strangely professionalised, then professional galleries and publications, and above all business and advertising, have started using vocabularies and styles they've learnt from amateurs online. What we did in these amateur spaces began to matter. Some of what we did became a thing, an aesthetic. We've been told we're only amateurs, that we're users, as in not producers, users, as in helpless addicts. We have more power than we've been told. I'm here to look at what happened in the temporary autonomous zones where pros turn am and ams go pro online. What happens when a work of art doesn't have a critic, a publisher, a gallery or even a named creator? What happens when the only thing that sees it is the net? What happens when it doesn't call itself art at all? Let's find out. Joanna Walsh there with the first chapter of On Amateurism, and she'll be back with more in a fortnight's time. We were sorry to learn this week of the death of Phil Baines, professor of typography, designer, inspirational teacher, writer and walking tour guide. Baines initially trained for the priesthood but converted to typography and became its professor at Central St. Martin's in London. His great love was type in the wild, letters on the landscape, and he shared the love through typographical walks, crucially around London but also elsewhere, including Dublin. There he and his fellow scholar guide Catherine Dixon led Culture File on a letter-spotting walk which was celebrated in the very first episode of Culture File. So this time we're going to hear again the sounds of that walk. One of the interesting things of a lot of this older inscriptional lettering is the way it, it fills and uses the space. Um, very often it, it follows the classical idea of filling a freeze. Phil or a, Baines or and Catherine Dixon don't see cities the way most people do. You know, the wording has been chosen to match the space and quite carefully considered. So here we have Mooney and Company Limited, Wines and Spirits. And to make it work across the space... Uh, Mooney is quite generously letter-spaced over on the left, but wines and spirits are packed a little bit more on the right. They can walk Just down a street anywhere in the world and get blown away by something most natives wouldn't even notice. They see letters everywhere. I think the letters are handled really well. They're, they're quite wide and they sit well on top of each other. 
and then the contrast of letter form for the word and, which is a sans serif, where everything else is serifs. But then on this side... And they love the them, the serifs, the descenders, the off-kilter capitals. Gaelic L in the middle of it. Almost conventional Roman, except for that L, just this little nod to the Gaelic. Not conventional. Well, OK, there's conventional and there's that. I mean, look at that D on and. It's just falling over backwards. It's yeah. part of its charm. Is when you start looking at the letters and the G is extraordinary. And those M's and N's with their little legs reaching out. And as leading typographers, they create a lot of letters too. When Penguin wanted to launch a new series on the world's great ideas, Baines and Dixon were commissioned to produce covers with only lettering. The collection, featuring pamphlets from the likes of Marcus Aurelius and John Ruskin, went on to be a million seller. People like good typography, it turned out. Given the history of Ireland and of Dublin, we're seeing quite a rich mixture of, of different things. Um, politics obviously play their part in this. But Baines and Dixon are becoming stars in the world of typography for another reason too. They run a very special walking tour of the written city. Beginning in London, branching out to Istanbul and Lisbon, and this week marching into Dublin, Catherine and Phil lead groups of typographers, design students and letter nerds through the city streets, hunting letters. What's nice is that, particularly so close to the city centre, there's quite a lot of nice things surviving in it, some of the more informal stuff, painted letters, painted signs that are still there, which is, there's like a richness here, which is nice to see. If a building has changed use on a ground floor level, looking up high and then seeing, ah, but look, there's things on different levels. A lot of buildings would have been identified simply by having what they did and what was going on in them uh, painted onto the front. So we saw a great example yesterday. where it's literally the whole front of the building, you know, it's been painted to tell you that this is a great place to buy your shoes. Um, uh, but what would have happened is that the lead in the paint... Um, uh, you know, so it's the, or the chemical makeup of the paint is really strong. So oftentimes what happens is that they completely disappear fades in time, you think it's gone, and then there's some weird chemical reaction and you have a plain wall and all of a sudden these letters start to appear and it's like, what's going on? And it's like the old 19th century letter forms and, and, and advertisements are starting to come back like from history to haunt us. We're very impressed by the number of clocks on O'Connell Street. We like clocks. <laughs> uh, Fleet Street's quite good, but Fleet Street doesn't have this many clocks. <laughs> As we walked around Dublin, Baines and Dixon got excited by the clocks of O'Connell Street, the lettering on the Sweeney mural in the Irish Life Centre, the serifs on pub facades. But one thing that clearly didn't impress them were the rapidly produced signs on the fringes of O'Connell Street. Did I really notice the pair flinch when they saw those? Yes. I mean, generally speaking, they're cheap and they're lazy. They're easy to maintain, they're easy to change, but... They are just computer typefaces, enlarged, typically cut out of plastic or made with vinyl or whatever. There's no real attempt at any interesting lettering or, you know, any interesting use of the material. So, yeah, generally we leave them alone. And there's nothing specific about being here. If you start to look at some typefaces and their use, 
Um, there's a typeface called um, Cooper Black. It happens to be used for any kind of fast food chicken place that isn't, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken. All the knockoff, ripoff ones just happen for bizarre reasons if you start looking to use this particular face. So there is sort of some, you know, there are some interesting kind of trends and things around particular commercial practices. But more, more generally, no, we're interested in things that were m made for here. You do, I mean, things do go. I mean, we developed, we had a little sign for it, um, and we, we've written on the subject of public lettering, and in our book it will say in the caption, it will tell you exactly where it is, because we're so annoyed when we look at other people's books, and it just says Dublin. <laughs> yeah, great, thanks. Do you, where, where in Dublin might that be? And it just doesn't bother telling us. So we were really pedantic about captioning where things are. And then it will say there's a little cross by the, by the, you know, no longer with us examples of lettering. Yeah, the dagger, the traditional mark yeah. for someone who's died, <laughs> is in the captions if it was no longer there when the book was published. You when take this very seriously. <laughs> when the book was reprinted, they asked us if there were any text corrections, and mainly it was just adding a few daggers here and there to things that had gone since the previous printing. Another dagger to be added now. The very first episode of Culture File again there, through the letter-filled streets of Dublin, guided by master typographer Phil Baines, who's died aged 65. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more ghost signs next Saturday tea time. Meanwhile, there's always the feed. There's always the feed. Bye now. <laughs>